Open with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll be reading the first 15 verses of Ecclesiastes 3, very popular verses, largely due to pop culture. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. And I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it, that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Time and time throughout Ecclesiastes, we, we see Solomon referencing life under the sun. What is life like here in this world? The, the, the reality for us as creatures. And he has examined philosophy and wisdom. He's examined labor and he's found that they've all fallen short because they do not fulfill. Now the transition is, is slightly different. We see rather than life under the sun, transition to every purpose under heaven. We might look at that and say, well, it's essentially the same thing. Life under the sun, under heaven, it's the same thing, just a variety of, of speech to keep it's interesting, but I think there's more to it than that. Because the focus here in chapter 3 is not so much the, the, the vanity of life here under the sun and, and how we, we cannot find fulfillment and purpose under the sun, but now the transition is to the perspective of God. 
under heaven. In everything that there is, all things, this, this listing of, of to be born and to die, and all of these items, all of these are things that are under the governance of heaven. Or as we confessed in the Catechism, Lord's Day 10, just a little while ago, the good hand of God's providence. He is the one who is over all things. He has made everything beautiful in His time, verse 11 says. Also, as he, he has put eternity in their hearts. He governs all things. And that's what we have here in this transition from life under the sun, which we'll see returning to 29 times I count in Ecclesiastes. Solomon speaks of life under the sun, but now he's transitioned to life under heaven and recognizing that God himself is over all things. And so I'd like to consider these 15 verses under three headings. The first being the seasons of life are in the hands of God. And that's the song that, that you were probably humming as we read, read through it, the first eight verses of, of Ecclesiastes 3. The seasons of life are in the hands of God. Secondly, the time and eternity are gifts from God. Time and eternity are gifts from God, verses 9 through 12. And finally, these truths must drive us to fear God. How will that affect us? And that's verses 14 and 15. The seasons of life are in the hands of God. A time to be born and a time to die. It's interesting the structure that, that Solomon employs in, in these eight verses. The, the song, turn, 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 uh, really misinterprets these, these verses as, as it becomes a mantra of, of peace and, and concludes with the final verses, a time of war and a time for peace, as if, as one commentator put it, as if the whole goal of life is peace. And that's not at all what Solomon is saying. He's laying out in 14 couplets how every element, every aspect of life is under the control of God. And I don't believe it's an accident that it's uh, 14. We, we see the completeness, the wholeness of, of seven throughout Scripture. And we see that here seven twice. That every aspect, every element of life, the completeness of life is there under the authority of God, the ordained work of God, the completeness of all things under Him. From the days of our life, the day that we're born, the day that we die, right down to the mundane of the planting and plucking of those things that God has caused to sprout up from the ground, all under the authority of our holy Sovereign, Almighty God. And the opposing parallels are not meant to be limited to only those things mentioned. As if God is in charge of the time of giving birth and the time of death. But the middle is up to us. We can do what we want. It's not at all what he's saying. But everything from beginning to end 
we might say, from A to Z, or, or from east to west and north to south, and everything in between is under the authority of God. That's what we see in these couplets that are laid out. We can't find a loophole and say it's only the two extremes. But Solomon is purposely saying in every element from one end to the other of life, we see under the authority of God. Now, I'm not going to go through all 14 of them today. We just don't have the time. But I would like to, to uh, pick a few of these and, and consider just briefly some of the aspects of what, what Solomon says is the purpose under heaven. A time to bring forth life and a time to die, we see in verse 2. We don't have the choice of deciding what day I'll be born. And generally, we can't determine the day of our death. And in cases of suicide, even there, it is all apart within the realm of God's eternal plan. We're held accountable for our sin, but God is not fooled, and God uses even our sin for his good. Planting and harvest. What day are you going to plant your corn this year? Now, you might have on your calendar that uh, a day that you plan to plant. Perhaps it's, I don't know, April 28th. I don't even know what day of the week that is. And normally, generally speaking, you might say that is a day where we can plant. Is it going to be raining that day? Is the snow going to be gone? Will it be muddy? Will it be whatever? Will there be a family emergency that keeps you out of the fields? We don't know. It's in the seasons of God. And that's just a few weeks away. How about harvest? What day are you going to harvest? October 15. But maybe there'll be snow on the ground. Maybe you'll have to chop it in July. We don't know. There's a time established by God. And, and though we don't know the particulars, yet on the flip side of that, we do know the generality because God is a God who, who has established the, the earth and the sun and, and the moon and all things. We know that you won't be spraying for grasshoppers in December because God has established a spring. Just February 20, I started some seeds in the garage for the tomatoes. Because I know that by the end of May, we will have spring. And in that general time, we won't have frost in the ground anymore. Don't know that because of happenstance, but because God has established a season for all things. We know that he governs them, the particulars and the generalities in all. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, we see in verse 3. Surgeons and soldiers each have their role, and it's not the same. One has the purpose of, of, of killing and the other of healing. How about weeping and laughter? Verse 4. We have seasons of life where we rightly weep. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. But there's times for rejoicing as we celebrate the joys of life. And they're distinct. 
because God gives us seasons of joy and seasons of sorrow. And sometimes those seasons come very closely together. But they're also within the sovereign guidance of our holy God. God has appointed these places, these seasons in our life. A time to gain and a time to lose, we see in verse 6. We have seasons even in, in our life where we're reliant upon parents for literally everything that we have. And oftentimes we go through seasons of, of barely scraping by as we're trying to, to become established. And then perhaps we go through a season where things are a little bit easier and we're accumulating for, for retirement. And oftentimes we then go through seasons where we can't be gaining anymore. And we're reliant upon those seasons, upon those savings. And in the end, all that has been saved is passed along to another. There's a time for gain and a time for loss. There's a time to speak and a time for silence, we see in verse 7. Scripture is replete with instruction on when the godly must speak. We don't have the privilege of, of just keeping our mouth shut all the time. When we see a lie being perpetrated, we are obligated to correct it. When we see the innocent being attacked, we are obligated to defend the innocent. We are called to rebuke sinners. To, we're called to give an account for our faith. We're called to the defense of the helpless. There is a time when we must speak, even when it's easier for us to keep our mouth shut. And yet there's also a time when we must keep our peace. When we are called to silence. Job says he, he covered his mouth because he had spoken out of turn before the Lord. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 17 tells us that even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered per perceptive. There's a time to speak. And there's a time not to speak. To hold your peace. When, when the gossip is so juicy. But you must hold your peace. Chapter, or verse 8. There's a time to love and a time to hate. Now, far from giving us license to harbor ill will towards our brethren, the focus here is on, on reflecting God and His attributes. There's a time to love God, and that's all the time. We must always love the One who has created us, the One who is sovereign over all things, the One who, who has made us in His own image. There's, there's a time to love our neighbor as ourself. God tells us this is, this is the direction, this is how we are to reflect Him. But there is a time to hate. There's a time to hate all that is antithetical to God. Anything that is uh, an offense to Him, we must hate what He hates. 
We must hate sin as He hates sin. We must hate those who oppose Him as He hates them as His enemies. We must hate what God hates. There's a time for all of these things. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. doesn't mean that we have to schedule a time to go out to, to war, but we, there is a time when, when nations must war. All of these things are under the sovereign guidance of our all-knowing, all-powerful, loving God. That does give us comfort, even as we considered from the catechism. It's not chaos. There's a time, and there's a season, and it's under heaven, not under our control. Secondly, we see that their time and eternity are gifts from God. We see this in verses 9 through 12. I'll read just verse 9 and 10. What profit has the worker from which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also put eternity in their hearts. Time and eternity are all within the realms of God. I remember as a, as a young boy, probably five years old, in Zeeland, Michigan, riding in the 1971 Ford pickup that my grandfather had at the time. We're riding between Howard Miller Clock Company and Royal Casket Company. And my grandfather, being the man who he was, in his dry wit, looked down at me and said, Son, I want you to remember this moment, because right now we are driving between time and eternity. I did remember that. It took me a while to really get the joke. But we are here in this life at the appointment of God, living in time and for eternity. In this life, the return on our labor is, is small. We might say, what's the point? What profit has the worker from that which he labors? The weeds and the pests consume and choke out the crops, and we consistently have to cultivate or weed or spray with, with herbicides. Death and illness deplete the profit from, from livestock. Why can't they all just live and thrive and grow? Decay, mismanagement, theft rob the profit from, from all businesses. Age and disease and fatigue limit our abilities even as people. We're reminded of, of chapter 1 in, in verse 13 where Solomon says, It's a burdensome task God has given the sons of men. That's, that's the kind of the idea that he has, has here. It is a burdensome task. We're in a, a world where the effects of sin have, have tainted everything. And, and the profit margin is, is dreadfully small in the big scheme of things because the effects of sin continue to ravish it. And yet, our labor is prescribed by God. We can't say, well, the effects of sin destroy all the profit. I'm just going to sit back and God will take care of it. Now, I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. 
God has given us task. He has appointed Adam in the garden and, and gave him employment. And then even after the fall, he has given us tasks. He said, do this. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. He's given us these things for, with, for us to be occupied, for us to reflect Him in His creative nature, for us to labor that we might eat. Although our labor is fraught with sorrow and frustration, yet we're reminded here that it is from God and it is a blessing from God that He has given us tasks for which we are responsible. Our labor is a blessing from God. And this must always govern the manner in which we conduct that which God has given us with which we are to be occupied. Do we have the right to, to do that task that God has set before us in, in a half measure? Putting out just the minimum amount of energy. Doing just the bare bones basics. Cutting corners. Remember, this is a calling from God a, a, a task which he has given us to be occupied, how are we to do it? Well, obviously, to the glory of God, to the very best of our ability, so that we would best reflect the God who does all things right and all things perfectly. It's easy for us to become frustrated by the task which he's given us in which to be occupied but therein we're being shown a picture of who God is. He does not grow weary of His creative works. He doesn't get tired of it. He doesn't lose heart for His work of perfecting us, of sanctifying us, of preparing us for eternity. Talk about crops full of thistles. That's us, the church. We're full of thistles. But God doesn't tire of, of perfecting us and preparing us for glory. Yet God, from His heart of pure love for His glory, for the, His heart of pure love for the mercy of His children, has labored sacrificially, persistently for your salvation so that the name of God might be exalted. That's what He does for us. And He has given us tasks with which we are to be occupied and therein to reflect Him. We've been created not just for this life, but for eternity. Time and eternity are gifts from God. He has made everything beautiful in its time, but He has put eternity in their hearts. He has created us not just for today, but for all time. And everything that he does is perfect. You might object. We live in a fallen world. Solomon is saying that God is, is over all. How can weeping and rending and war and death be good? Because God uses it in even our wickedness to perfect his way. As Joseph could say to his brethren, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yes, this rending and the death and the weeping and the war are all results of the fall. And God uses even these ugly realities to perfect us, to prepare us, and to beautify us. So he says, everything is beautiful in its time. 
God uses the laughter as well as the tears perfectly as he shows forth the tapestry of his eternal providential care for his creation. The truth of God's beautiful care gives us reason to forgive the brethren, just as Joseph forgave his brethren. Because we have been sinned against, as we have sinned against God, and because God uses that sin for our perfection, therefore we can and must reflect God in a heart of forgiveness. Were to harbor bitterness or an unforgiving spirit would be to deny the goodness of God. And he says, I've done everything, and it's beautiful in its time. As image bearers, humanity knows that our spirits are eternal. Many are there who, who deny the eternal nature of our spirits, but we know. We're created in the image of God. We're created with the, uh, an everlasting spirit. He has put eternity in our hearts. Every culture around the world has a sense of eternity. But my dogs don't. The cats don't. Your cows don't. But all humanity, as image bearers of God, have the sense of eternity placed upon our hearts. Every culture knows that we will in one way stand before God and give an account for our life, and for our rebellion, and for our sin. Well, it's no wonder the enemies of God deny it, because our conscience testifies to our guilt before a holy God. But for us, children of God, the church which which he has redeemed through the blood of his Son. Psalms reminding us that our innate sense of eternity should drive us to a life of humility. To drive us to living for eternity. Because it's not just about today. But it's about forever in reflecting our Lord. Now we're not little gods. There's a distinction being drawn here between the Creator and the creature. Even though He has made us with a sense of eternity, we are still the creature. We see the seasons of life that God has given us. It is God who has established a time to cast out stones and a time to gather, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. That's God. That's under heaven. That's under His authority. We do not govern the seasons. We're bound by them. But as image bearers, we are often reminded that we reflect Him, that we serve Him, and that there is one God, and that God's not us. As creatures, we're being reminded that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. Verse 11. No one can find out the work that he does from the beginning to the end. Now, God has revealed himself, and he tells us he has established the seasons. He tells us that, that all things are under his authority. He shows us certain things. But when did God decide, and how did he decide, and how does he work it out? That is in the realm of God as the creator. No one can find out 
we live under the laws of God. And as such, we are to live as as his children, not as his peers. No one can find out the work that God has done. We are created. We are not creators. Humanity continues to exalt herself as little gods. Just follow the science. A science that always changes. We keep building the, power, the Tower of Babel time and time again, trying to, to reach God, to establish ourselves as, as God's itself. But we're not. We're being reminded here by Solomon, the wisest of all, to know our place, to be satisfied, to live under the God of heaven, the God who has established all things, and to live in light of eternity. I know that nothing is better than, for them than to rejoice and do good in their lives. Since God, as the creator and sustainer of all things, has given this to us, as we noted last week, we're called to rejoice, to, to recognize the, the good hand of God, to enjoy the, the, what He has given us in time, to take time to appreciate it. Because it's for our good. Give thanks for the care of God. Enjoy the blessings that are from Him. Worship God as the giver of all good things. It is the gift of God. And finally, thirdly, these truths must drive us to fear God. It must affect the way in which we live. Truth number one. God is eternal and He does not change. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever, our text tells us. God does not change. God's decrees are complete and they're perfect. They glorify Him and they're, they're for the good of His people. This nature of God is why we're still here. Because He doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O gods of all sons of Jacob. Because of the very nature of God, we're not consumed. Because of His mercy, because of His grace, because of His covenant promise that, that was established already in the garden and was revealed throughout Scripture, because I do not change. Think of that. If God changed, we would be consumed. Rightly so, we would be destroyed. But whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. And he shows his attributes for the purpose of receiving our worship. God does it that men should fear before him. Why does he show us the wonder of the skies, the, the wonder of the seasons? Why does he give us health and sickness, riches and poverty, plenty and, and want? So that we would worship Him. So that we would recognize His good hand. So that we would see His sovereignty and bow under it. God does it that men would fear Him. Think about this. 
God gives us seasons of joy and sorrow and plenty and poverty, war and peace for the purpose of showing you mercy. That's why he's doing it. So that you would see the wonder of who God is and humble yourselves before him and worship him. The purpose of showing mercy is for us so that we would receive blessing from him. His name would be glorified. So in displaying his majesty, we're being shown the only way of salvation. It's set upon display before us. We're being shaken from our tendency to make ourselves into little gods and shown the wonder of the one true God and shown that we are not the ones who set the seasons, but we belong to the one who does. And of course, the greatest display of God's nature is the work of Christ upon the cross. Here, the pinnacle of God's eternal decrees for the purpose of cleansing those who had maliciously defiled ourselves and attacked God. He humbled himself to send us his son to redeem us. He didn't need to set his attributes upon display, but he did for the purpose of of receiving our worship, that we would fear him. Finally, God seeks the pursued. Verse 15. God requires an account of of that which is past. More more accurately, God God seeks or, or chases down the pursued. A summary statement of everything that that precedes. We're living as fallen creatures in a fallen world. As such, life has become futile. We're we're chasing the wind. We're we're herding cats. Sorrow, trial, tribulation, futility, and even death pursue us, granted on account of our own rebellion. And given our own sinful inclinations, we would flee from God. But he seeks the pursued. He seeks us to save us. He's not pleased to leave us in in that estate wherein we placed ourselves by our own rebellion. But rather he seeks us out and he shows us mercy. He shows us Christ. He shows us the cross. The greatest of things done under heaven is the salvation of his church, of you and I. Those who he has sought out snatched out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. He has shown us mercy and grace which we would not have sought on our own. But he's pleased to seek us out, to make our hearts alive and point us to the salvation that he has purchased for us through the sacrifice of his son. Amen. Let's please rise for a prayer of application which will then conclude with the Lord's Prayer. Lord our God, we come before your throne. You have sought us when we were yet enemies. You have pursued us. You have softened our hearts and you have shown us your grace. Lord, give unto us hearts to live this life under heaven, recognizing that you are the sovereign, all-powerful God, and to live in fear, holy fear of you, in righteous awe of who you are. 
for you are the God of our salvation. Now we conclude our prayer using those words that Christ himself taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.